would, beloved, turn to Hebrews 8, the 8th chapter of Hebrews. So last Lord's Day, we returned to our series in Hebrews. We've been quite some time away from it, but getting back into it again. We looked at the opening five verses last time. I'm going to read with you again from verse one, just to help with the flow of the the argument, your understanding of the context. Let us hear the Word of God. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. But they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, that that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This is the very Word of God. I trust that you understand it to be infallible, inerrant. God Himself is speaking to men's hearts, to your heart. So receive it and believe it. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help as we are considering Thy Word today. We Always need help. Always. 
we can't properly or rightly understand the least or the simplest or the most clear of thy word, for these things are spiritually discerned. But I pray in these moments that thou wilt come to us to grant us that teachableness and that insight and understanding to comprehend thy word. We pray above all teachers would be the Holy Spirit. He would come and take what is of his and pointing to Christ and enabling us to magnify our God. May we all know the power then of the word upon our lives today or encouragement or whatever else is needed. Extend thy kingdom through thy word then we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The well-known Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon titled The Wondrous Covenant, the doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. Spurgeon refers to the covenant of works, or sometimes known as the covenant of creation, or names that indicate what was established in the early chapters of Genesis. He is recognizing that God made an arrangement with man. He made an arrangement with Adam. This arrangement is termed a covenant. Now, we hear words like that that maybe aren't familiar and we begin to switch off or imagine that the preacher is going over our heads. I hope that's not the case this morning, especially before this congregation. But in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, read a couple of paragraphs there that deal with this whole idea of God's dealings with men. In paragraph 2, it says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So man is put in this position where he is called to obey. If he obeys, then there is the promise of life upon perfect obedience. The next chapter then says, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, The Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So here you see the other side of it. Adam, by his fall, Adam, by rebellion, there's no possible way he could ever come into a condition of life when God steps in. You see this mercifully where the Lord comes seeking for Adam in order that he might, as it were, seize upon him and give him a message of hope. This is responded to by faith, Adam calling his wife Eve because she's a mother of living. 
Not simply indicating that from her do all men come, but in her is the promise that there will be one who is made of the seed of the woman who would bring deliverance and salvation. A covenant in basic terms is an agreement between two parties upon express terms or conditions. And so you see God dealing with men various times and seasons, with Adam obviously, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, and even language of covenant that is made to David as well. And the relevance of all of this becomes clear as we see the apostle moving on to compare what is described as the first or old covenant uh, and then the the new covenant or the, the second. In this context, the old covenant points to the arrangement made between God and His people through Moses. And the new covenant is the arrangement made between God and His people through Christ. So this is, this is really important because we're coming here to a, a transition point in the argument because you might ask, having given all the sermons that we've dealt with, all the weeks and months of looking, really hinging on the, the idea of Christ as the high priest of the people of God, you may begin to ask the question, well, well what is the connection? Why does he move on to this discussion of the new covenant in con- contrast with the old and in light of this whole idea, or what connection does it have with Christ being the high priest? And again, that has been underlined in the opening verses where it speaks of every high priest, but then our Lord Jesus Christ, who is contrasted with that being a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, that being his ministry is in heaven rather than upon the earth. What is the connection? Well, the only reason the Levitical priesthood existed was because of that old covenant that was made by God through Moses. It was that which established everything that has been already detailed. The, the, the contrast with this particular order, that which has been going on for millennia since the time of Moses, that was established at a point in time at Sinai. And so, with Christ's priesthood coming into the picture to supplant the Levitical priesthood, there has to also be a supplanting of the covenant. Because if the covenant remains, then the priesthood remains. If the covenant established by God through Moses to Israel stays in place, then it is right that those Levitical priests continue their work. But if Christ has come, or I should say since Christ has come, to fulfill everything that it pointed to and to supplant the purpose of the old covenant, which was merely a figure or pointing towards what the Son of God would accomplish, since that is the case, He has come to take that, then there has to be a new covenant that gives the right for that. A new covenant that, as it were, does away with the old and brings in the new, and in that new, then you have this representation in Jesus Christ. I hope that makes sense because it's important for us, and this is part of our reason of going through a book like this, is that you get the connection the connecting ideas. Why is it he's leaping from this whole idea of Jesus as a high priest to now dealing with the idea of old and new covenant? They are connected. The Levitical priesthood existed because the old covenant was made, and in that old covenant was prescribed Aaron and his sons to be set apart for a priesthood, their work to be pointing forward to what the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish. And then with Christ having come, there is no more need of that. 
And so it's not just he comes and that, that covenant continues, it is annulled. It has to be put away, as it were, because there is this new covenant. So I have the task today to deal with verses 6 through to the end with you, and I, I'm, I hope I am able to do it. I've titled the message simply, A Superior Covenant. And the verses that we have before us are some that are considered most challenging, certainly can bring their difficulties. Maybe you have read them at times and, and wondered, what exactly is this saying? Well, I hope you'll be at least somewhat clearer before we end our time together today. A superior covenant, three heads. It is unparalleled, it is unavoidable, and it is unbreakable. It is unparalleled, unavoidable, unbreakable. I know some of you like to keep your ideas together and those heads kept short might help you just to keep your memory jogged with the whole idea of what is going on. But let's, let's consider them first. It is unparalleled. Verse 6, but now has he obtained the more excellent ministry, speaking here of Christ, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So just a note here, first, that in this superior covenant, it is superior because of the mediator, the mediator of the covenant. Because the mediator, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of a better covenant. And we're told that he has obtained, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. How is it more excellent? What way is it more excellent? How can the Apostle Paul say that Christ's ministry is more excellent? Remember, remember, Moses didn't invent the Levitical priesthood. Moses didn't invent all the ceremonies. Moses didn't invent all that was done through the millennia in the tabernacle, around the tabernacle, and later in the temple. He didn't invent it. God had given it. And the apostle then is saying that something, that, that which has come, this, this new covenant, new media, this, this mediator in Christ that, that we have as the people of God, that it is a more excellent ministry that he conducts rather than what was gone on before. Why is this? Well, on the Day of Atonement, and this is going to come up more and more as we progress, that this specific event, one day a year, when of all the events and all the ceremonies, this was the one that was very much hands-off for the children of Israel. They, they had no sacrifice to bring, but they had to, it was the one day in which they were required to fast, bringing a sense of solemnity, God helping to uh, sober their minds, that that's the one time, it's the only time in the entire uh, law where God requires fasting, and it's on this one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, and on that day, they watch their high priest conduct the ceremonies. He does it on their behalf. He confesses sins of himself and for the nation, and he has the two goats, and he kills one of them, and he takes the blood of that goat that's killed, he takes it right into that holy, most holy place, that inner part of the tabernacle, to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, then to return, at which point then the, the sins are laid upon the head of the goat and is taken out into the wilderness, carrying away like the guilt and sin is all being carried away as far as the east is from the west. Well, on that day, the Levitical high priest, he entered the type of the heavenly sanctuary, 
that whole, most holy place was a type of like entering into heaven itself. And there he presented blood, presented the sacrifice that had just taken place. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he enters a sanctuary, but it's heaven itself. And he goes there bearing again the sacrifice that he had just offered. Going into that most holy place, the, the true tabernacle, the true sanctuary rather, that he was in by the merits of his own shed blood. In that way then, his ministry is more excellent, obviously, because the high priest goes into something that is fashioned, yes, under divine direction, but it's fashioned and it's here on the earth. Jesus Christ carries his own blood into heaven itself, and you can't compare the two in terms of the, the value of what is going on. Christ did not challenge the Levitical high priest for his position. You have that. Again, this, this contrast, verse, verse 1, look at it. We have such an high priest who is set in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. And then verse 3, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity, necessity this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he, that is Jesus, were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And the idea is that they have their work and they offer their gifts according to the law, but the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not trying to challenge them. In his work, he transcends them. He is not coming into the temple and saying to Caiaphas, and say, pushing him aside and saying, this is my place. He's not competing on earthly terms. He transcends that. All that Caiaphas and all the high priests proceeding, going back to Aaron, all that they did was pointing towards what Jesus Christ would do. And so, as I say, he is not competing with them. He transcends them. He does everything that they pointed towards. They ministered in that which was patterned after the true. Christ ministers within the true sanctuary itself. And so that gives him a more excellent ministry. It's higher. But not only do you see here the mediator of the covenant, but the promises of the covenant. Verse 6, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. This the superior covenant is established upon better promises. Now, in the language that's implied then, I, I need you to follow with me because <laughs> this morning is going to require a lot of like explanation. So if you're drifting, then you're going to get nothing. And I, I'm going to have to reserve most of my application to the very end. So I, I really, I need you, beloved, really switch on and follow here because it is, is a challenging passage and you need to see it in its context. But here you have these, these, these better promises. Implied then is that there were promises given already. It's not like the old covenant didn't have promises. In fact, we, we know that the old saints had promises that they held on to, and they were precious to them. When we come to Hebrews 11, we're going to read in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. So they had promises. But the issue was in the form, the form of the Old Covenant and what the form promised. Now go over to the next chapter, Hebrews 9. Again, if you can imagine this is one long sermon, so you can't just 
stick within the particular verses. You, you get help by looking at the flow of the argument. In Hebrews 9, verse 13, If the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that the promise, one of the promises contained in the ceremony was that it would make you ceremonially clean. That you'd have a right to come in and, and be involved and participate and so on. It did something outwardly. It allowed you to participate That's what it promised. Verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The promise in Christ, the promise that's given here, elevates that it's not just some ceremonial right I have to come before God, but I have deliverance from my dead works and I can truly serve the living God. That's what it promises. To come to Jesus Christ is to give you access to God, to serve God, being delivered from all your shortcomings, being cleansed from all your sin, not just in some ceremonial fashion, but in a true fashion. You're truly able and equipped and made to positionally have this standing where you can serve God. Did the Old Covenant ceremonies point to great promises? They did. They pointed to them, didn't they? I mean, think of it. Think, think of the Day of Atonement. Think of how that brought before the people's eyes that they need a mediator to deal with their sin. Think of how they saw His intercessory work in prayer for them as a people. Think of how they considered the blood shedding. Think of how it, they saw him going into the very immediate, as it were, presence of God as it could be known in that time where God's presence and his glory was known there in the holiest of all. Think of all that they saw as they just watched there. Were they not being taught salvation by a substitute, by one who would stand in their place? Were they not seeing that salvation was nothing that they could do Nothing they could contribute, but they needed to watch one perform the work on their behalf. Were they not seeing the need as he is cleansed and made ceremonial clean, the need for perfection in the mediator? Did they not see the imputation of guilt to the animal, showing the transfer of that guilt from them to another? Did they not see? Did that not point to and promise in what it pointed to? Tremendous truth. Of course. But we must distinguish between what the old covenant ceremonies taught and what they accomplished. Did it actually accomplish forgiveness of sins for the high priest to go through all of that? Did it? Did it actually deal with the problem of the sins of the Israelite? Were their sins actually transferred and taken away? Were their sins actually cleansed? Were their sins actually dealt with in full? No. The ceremonies taught salvation, but they did not contribute to salvation. 
And so what is promised in the new covenant who has, who, whose mediator is one who can actually deal with sin is far greater, far superior. This mediator that we have in Jesus Christ gives us all the privileges of this superior covenant. So, it's unparalleled. You can't compare. Verse 6 is showing as he, and really it's a transition verse where we're moving away from discussion on the high priest to consider this, this whole idea of the new or the better covenant. It is showing it's unparalleled. You can't compare it because of the ministry of the mediator, because of the mediator himself and the promises that come through his actual work. But it's also unavoidable. This superior covenant is unavoidable. You look at verses 7 through 9. We learn that it was the deficiencies in the old covenant to actually deal with sin that require then the new covenant. The new covenant in that sense was unavoidable. We might even say it was anticipated. That no one looking at the old covenant and rightly considering all of the glories of it could actually come away with confidence that sin has been dealt with and we have true fellowship with God. So this superior covenant is unavoidable. And as we think of it being unavoidable, just a few things to note here. First, it's perfection. It's perfection. We are told in verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. If it had been faultless, the fact that the old covenant was not faultless does not suggest that God made a mistake. That would be a wrong conclusion. So you're looking at verse 7, that first covenant. Here you have this people gathering around Mount Sinai, Moses representing them and going as a mediator between them and establishing them the Levitical priesthood and so on. If that first covenant had been faultless, it does not say that God made a mistake. It also doesn't show or indicate that it was unintentionally deficient. What I mean by that is that over the process of time, people might imagine, well, eventually they realized that it was deficient. Eventually they realized that it came up short. As if God didn't know. God gave it. He specified the details of it. He ordered it. He planned it. And He granted it to His people. And so it accomplished what it was intended to do. We must understand this. It accomplished what it was intended to do. Its fault was in its ability, inability rather, to be the final expression of the covenant of grace, of God's dealing with men to truly reconcile them to himself. It came up short to actually deal with what man needed. Now let me ask you, as you read through the Old Testament, do you see it as presenting a message in which when we come to the New Testament, God is retroactively responding to a problem and, and, and saying, well, there's, there's a shortcoming here. We need to respond. No, no, he's not, he's not 
And there's nowhere. He specifically gives these details. And it's fault was intentional. They were never intended to look to Aaron or to any of his descendants or to look to the animals or to look to the tabernacle itself and imagine that any of that or what happened there was an expression of, of, of salvation, providing salvation, procuring salvation. None of it could. None of it could. And, and you know that the old, we know that the Old Testament saints understood this. Psalm 51. What does David say in Psalm 51 when he's pleading for forgiveness? Verses 16 and 17. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David knew. Now this didn't stop him from engaging in it. It didn't make it pointless. Because it it published. That's like saying our, our communion table is pointless because it doesn't actually procure or provide salvation for us. So why bother with it? No, no, it, 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 it publishes, it, it preaches. It, and this is what we do. We proclaim the Lord's death till he come. And in a sense, that's what the ceremonies were doing as well. They were proclaiming truth proclaiming man's need to be right with God, man's need to find salvation outside of himself, man's need for cleansing from sin. It was proclaiming all of that. So you still, you still engaged in it if you were an obedient Israelite, believing Israelite, but you could not find your hope in it. It couldn't actually deal with sin. Now, many signs indicated the deficiency of the old covenant. And so it is declared that it must be replaced. Look down to verse 13 just to see how this portion ends. A new covenant, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so the, the prophet here was, was warning. And everything was warning that this was going to go away. And th think of it. We referred last week to, to Exodus 25 where... God underlines, and it's put right here in this passage, that, that, that Moses was to do everything after the pattern that was showed to him. That in itself was implying. It was only, it was only pointing towards something. That the real existed elsewhere. The true existed elsewhere. And this was, this was just reflective of that. In itself, that is showing, by implication, its own shortcoming. Because there exists something else true. And so they should have been expecting something else. And this is what the prophet then says. He declares that there's going to be this decaying. We're told it will wax old, ready to vanish away. Which, of course, is exactly what's happening in the, in the time. And I can't get into this, but you're, you're, you're in the middle of the, of the 60s, of the first century. And so it's just a few years before this whole operation at the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to literally vanish away. So they should expect a change. The language of the prophet regarding a new covenant, we'll go to that in just a moment, but that language should have been telling them that something else 
is coming and therefore there's a deficiency in the original. No one in the first century should have been saying that what we have here and now is enough. They ought to have been convinced, even if they were to deny Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, they still should have concluded there's something else to come. Something else more that needs to be done. So the new covenant, contrasted with the old, is perfect. The implication is this first covenant has a fault. The new one does not. So it's perfection. It's people. Consider also it's people. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, in other words, he, he can see the shortcoming in them, Right? God looks at his people and sees their shortcoming. In other words, they need, they need something to make them right. right? They're no different from us. <laughs> I mean, God could say the same to you. Finding fault with you. There is need for something else. So seeing the shortcoming, then we are told, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, when Israel left Egypt, it, they weren't all of the line of Jacob that were there. We were told in Exodus 12, I think it's verse 38, that there, there was a mixed multitude. There were, there were Egyptians among them. There were others who went with them. And so even at Sinai, it was not purely those of the house of Israel. But this is how God is dealing with them because the promises, the promises are made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he is dealing with covenantally with them as a family is extending that work that he has already given to them and establishing a nation out of this people. But whenever it says here, and again, we'll go to Jeremiah 31 in just a moment, where this is taken from. This is, this is language of the new covenant, right? Of what, is, what you have in your New Testament, the unfolding of what you have in your New Testament. Right? With the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet it is made, look at it, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now I know some get really upset when you start using Israel spiritually. But if you don't do it here, why are we here today? Why are we here? Because we're Gentiles. I, I don't know. Again, like I said last week, there may be some Jews here I'm not aware of. Maybe you're not even aware of it. I don't know. But if, if this is being made with them exclusively, in the sense of this is with this ethnic people, and it's just for them, then we might as well forsake our assembly here. There's no point, because everything that we're doing, what we've been singing about, the grounds upon which we have prayed, and all that we do in this place is based upon this new covenant, what we have in Jesus Christ. And so in that language, and the apostle takes it, and he has no problem, no problem. Now he is addressing a specific, like more concentrated Hebrew audience. We know that. That's why it's given. The book of Hebrews given that title. But that doesn't mean to say that we aren't brought into this. This is the argument then of, of Ephesians, isn't it? In Ephesians 2. They have broken down the middle wall of partition and made the two one, bringing them together, brought nigh by what? The blood of Christ. The blood of the covenant has united Jew and Gentile into one body. 
So you can refer to them sometimes as, as Israel or Judah. And this is what Paul does then in Galatians 6. I think it's verse 16. He refers to them in Galatia as the Israel of God. They are the Israel of God. They are, they are gathered in. They, they worship the same God. They're part of the same family. Now, there are different ethnic lines, and God has a purpose. Don't get me wrong. He has a perf- purpose for ethnic Israel. That, that's unfolded in, in Romans 11. But you have to see that, here's my point. There is one people in all generations, one people of God. One people. There's one way of salvation. There's one approach to God. There's one ground of our hope. And I, it, I know I don't need to say too much regarding this to you, but I, I'm saddened by those who, who cannot seem to see this. That God is, is, going to, is pulling all the nations. Yes, He used Israel. And still has a purpose with relation to them. But there's no second-rate position when it comes to the promises of God. And their fulfillment, I don't care whether you're talking about land or salvation or whatever it is, their fulfillment is only on the basis of the merit of Christ. Only. Everything comes to us through Christ. So, you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, come into this promise that was given. It would have made no sense to those in Jeremiah's day if it had said anything else, if this covenant was made with any other people. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we we come in there just like those Egyptians joined with them. Around Sinai. So there is this, this united one tree in Jesus Christ. One people. I need to move on. It's, it's people. Just, just to say, say, this new covenant brings all nations together. Just hope that's clear. It's perfection, it's people, it's power. Verse 9, it's power. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I, regard, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So here, this is again negatively spoken, but it's in contrast with the new covenant. This new covenant isn't like the old that was made with the fathers when they were led out of Egypt and brought to Sinai. They continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Now, again... What did they do or what did they need to do in order to continue in this covenant, in the old covenant? It says, they continued not in my covenant. What were they meant to do? Now, this is where I part ways with even good men. It's where, you know, it's commonly found among Baptists, but it's not exclusive. John Owen falls into this as well, where, to use terminology that's used today, you come to Sinai, and what they see is happening. God is, is, is a, what they refer to as a, a republication of the covenant of works. 
They believe that what's happening there is an expression of what happened in Eden. And so God is establishing grounds, and in that covenant, it requires obedience of them. If they obey, there's life. If they disobey, there's death or suffering or consequences for it. That's what they think is happening at Sinai. Beloved, that is not what's happening at Sinai. It is not what's happening at Sinai. It is not a republication of the covenant works. It is not a covenant that is based around works. It is a gracious covenant. It is a different administration. It looks different than what we have today. But it is not a covenant works. I can tell you why. In, in multiple ways. Think of it, first of all, what God has done for Israel coming out of Egypt. What has he done for them? Have they earned their way out of Egypt? No. Salvation is entirely by grace. Exodus 19 says they were brought, carried on eagles' wings. The language even of this is tender and gracious, isn't it? I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Everything leading up to Sinai is gracious. All of his dealings with them are gracious. And so if you start thinking that what happened there was, was, was works and based on works, and that they had to obey in order to maintain, and so on and so forth, then think about what you're saying. Think about what you're saying. Because in that covenant, you have all, let me put it this way, you have Leviticus, right? Let's just put it that way. Like in, in that covenant, you have Leviticus. Leviticus established their worship, didn't it? Now, if it is all works, right? If it's a covenant of works, then you're saying that Leviticus is, is, is law, and God is using law to point to the gospel. You can't use law to point to the gospel. The law can never direct you to the truth, the gospel. It can show you what's wrong. It can, it can show you the, the fault, but it, it can never be the gospel itself. It can never be the gospel. And so you're saying that God establishes there a covenant which is law, then I say, how on earth do you then see the gospel in it? There, there can't be any gospel in it. It can't point to the gospel. It's law. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. It, and it ignores language of God's promise of his presence with them. I think it's Leviticus 26, where he says that he will be their God and they will be his people and he will dwell with them. And that is the essence of the covenant of grace. It's what Palmer Robertson called the Emmanuel Principle. And it goes from Genesis through Revelation. And it's in, it's in there. And that's why our Presbyterian forefathers, they argued this case. They made it clear that these are different administrations. But this is not a covenant of works. It's different. It's the covenant of grace administered in a different way. Now, there's a great work by Samuel Rutherford called The Covenant of Life Opened. And he deals with this in that. I don't have any time this morning to make any reference to his arguments. But he has a number of them. And the language, if you find it, is, is very antiquated. It's, it's a, it's a, it takes a little <laughs> to plow through it. But he makes very clear arguments that this, this, this has to be what happened at Sinai. Is another administration of the covenant of grace. It's not works. Now, let me go back to the question I asked. Verse 9, they continued not in my covenant. 
How did they not continue in his covenant? Go back to Hebrews 4. Because the apostles already told you how he didn't continue. Verse 2. Unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Who is them? It's that generation that came out of Egypt along with Moses. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Why did they not continue in the covenant? Unbelief. Unbelief. It's not do's and don'ts in terms of the outward things. It's not whether or not they, 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 they kept the, the sabbatical for the land and so on. And that, that plays into it. That, that expresses their unbelief. They're, they're, they're ignoring of various commands. They're setting aside of various commandments. It showed their, the, the, that they were not a believing people. But the root sin, the problem, the gospels preached to them through Moses and they didn't believe. And it's the same today. It is the same today. Living now in a new covenant era. What are you told to do? Believe and you will live. Believe and you will live. It was the same for them. No different. So they didn't keep the covenant because they didn't believe. Now that's really important and it will become more important as we make, through, make our way through this epistle. But if you have, again, if you have the old covenant as a republication of the covenant of works, and this may be over some of your heads, I get it. Some of the rest of you may be following. But to me, it flies in the face of Galatians 3.17 that it would have annulled the promise given to Abraham. The reason it doesn't annul the promise given to Abraham is it's supplementing what was given to Abraham. It's, it has its part in God's gracious dealings with his people. But the new covenant is going to result in something different. And this brings us to the third and final point. It will be unbreakable. My time is running away from me, but please try and hear me out here. As you see the, the unbreakable uh, nature of this, this new covenant. Verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. There are various ways in which this is understood. There are those... You see, this new covenant, since it's, we're talking about it being superior, is superior in its membership because it excludes those who do not profess faith in Christ in this life. This would tend to be, again, a Baptist view in which this is why they will not give a sign of the covenant to their children because it's clear, is it not? Is it not clear? They will all know me. So your children don't yet profess faith, so therefore they don't receive the sign of the covenant. That's, that's how they take it. That's one way, and good men take it that way. Another way is that the new covenant is superior comparatively because it is more effective. And so you see this language that you have here, 
And so many will come to the conclusion and say, yes, we see this developed more, and compared to the old covenant era, it's far more effective in accomplishing this than ever the old covenant was. Another view is to see that the new covenant is superior in an already not yet way, an already not yet way, in that, yes, comparatively, it does achieve more and is more effective in establishing, we'll look at these words in just a moment, it's more effective, but it doesn't have its full, complete realization here. I mean, look at it. Look at what it's saying. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. I mean, we're memorizing Psalm 119, part of it. Is there any mention of the law being in the psalmist's heart? Guiding him? Leading him? Of course. It's, it's every, nearly every verse. So they had that in the Old Covenant era. You have verse 11. Every man who's meant to know, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. You ask yourself, is that true? Is that true in any age? That every single person will know? Look at verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Do we not, did they not already have that? Do we, did they not already have that? I mean, the Old Testament passages that promise forgiveness. I understand why some people want to see this as expressing that the church visibly is more pure. I get it. What they seem to forget who take that position in an effort to try and make this passage fit so that everyone knows the Lord. That means you exclude children. You ex what it seems to omit is the fact it doesn't matter what precautions you take. It doesn't matter what precautions you take, whether you say that my children have a right to receive a sign or no. It doesn't matter anything in terms of the experience we have in the church. The experience of the church in this life is mixture. You cannot deny that without arguing against the parable of the sower. The wheat and the tares. The five wise and five foolish, foolish virgins. The man without a wedding garment. You can't Deny that without arguing against Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, Demas, the warnings of 1 John 2. The church is always subject to mixture. You can't have it so that you can absolutely say definitively, we all know him. We all know him. It has never been. The first church, Adam, Eve, and Cain and Abel, subject to mixture. Cain did not know the Lord. And right to the coming of Christ, there will be those sitting, virgins who have no oil in their lamps, 
tares that are growing up with the wheat that need to be kept there until harvest. Whatever passage you wish to refer to. Realizing that then, the absolute nature of this text, they shall all know me. You have to see it as an already, not yet. It has to have an eschatological fulfillment. It has to be looking to something future. That I think we can taste here below somewhat. But we lament that it's not in its full glory. And one day we will experience it. I'm going to just note, I, I wanted to turn to Jeremiah 31, but the time has gone. I'm going to just note a few things there for you. You go and read Jeremiah 31. Go and read it. And note that in that passage, there is a promise of land. There is a promise of perfect judgment. There's a promise of the new covenant, which of course is our passage. And the promise of a future Jerusalem, or what we might term a new Jerusalem. And all of them are part of what they were to look forward to. Now think of the perfect judgment because in the perfect, it's saying clearly that there will be no mixing of people coming into judgment because that's what they were enduring, wasn't it? They were a generation and they said, our fathers have brought us here. It's their fault, it's their sin. And there was truth in it. There was truth in it. In part, their fathers had brought that generation. They were led captive, brought them right to that point. There was truth in it. And what he is promising in the future is that there will come a time where you will never suffer under folly and sin of anyone else. Beloved, that doesn't happen here below. That's a future day. We still suffer. We suffer from the actions and folly of other people. The remnant struggle with us, but it is so. So there's a future fulfillment and I say to you, go to Revelation 21. I'm going to read it really quickly. What I think Revelation 21 is, is promising to you and to me is the full fruition of the new covenant. We taste it here. Does God put his laws into our mind and write them in our hearts? It was known in the past. I think we can argue it was known. It is known to a greater extent now, but it's not perfect, right? It's not like we obey everything. Verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. But the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. 
And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you go and you look at what God is promising in the new covenant, there's a city that's coming, there's perfect judgment, and there's obedience among the people of God. And it is only there, it is only there, where we look at one another, realizing not that the fileth can enter in. If we're all here, if we're all here, then we will all know him from the least to the greatest. There is no dispute. That is the only time it can be stated absolutely. And so I say to you, beloved, this is our hope and our encouragement. And it does two things for us. It gives us anticipation that there is so much still for us to experience in the new covenant. That our mediator who ministers in a heavenly sanctuary has so many more blessings still to bestow upon you and me. The removal of the curse, the dwelling with him without any tainting of our own sin or the fallen nature of this world or whatever. We can anticipate something still to come. But at the same time, it also indicates to us because he's putting his laws into our heart. And so it says what his objective is, is that we would be a people who walk in accordance with his will, which says to us, amidst our infirmity, amidst all of our shortcomings, amidst our backslidings, it says to us, as people of God, it says, walk in his law. Walk in his law. Those commandments, including a day of rest, which is under such assault in the evangelical church, that law is written on your heart. It's going to be kept. And it ought to be kept today. You can't play with God's laws. They are written on our heart. So we should obey it. And when we fall short, we look to the mediator, we see one who has established the grounds of our forgiveness and we long for that day when we're satisfied because we awake with his likeness. Let's bow together in prayer. There's a lot, <clears throat> lot to unpack there. I thank you for your patience. I encourage you to reflect upon what you have in Christ, ultimately, because this is the whole drive of this epistle. Stop looking to men ministering in a temple. Stop looking to a lineage that was set apart 
by God, but was intended to terminate. Look to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made flesh, dying upon Calvary, rising again from the dead, seated at the right hand of the majesty of God, who will make all things new. Lord, help us to anticipate a brighter day. And until then, to occupy till you come. We pray for grace to love thy word, to love thy law. Because one day it is going to be so in our hearts. Praise God, we will never sin again. Think of the words of McShane when he longed for that day when he wrote of loving thee with unsinning heart. Oh God, help us, help us to look to that day and make preparation for it, good preparation, by casting off the works of the flesh and putting on Christ. Hear our prayers. Bless this people with thy peace and continue to work in all of our lives, sanctifying us through thy truth. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.